we continue to pursue a greater understanding of this thing we call revival. And remember, I, I call it a thing, but really we're not seeking some emotional high, some mystical experience. We're seeking the reviver. Revival is the life of God at work in our lives. It's that fresh work of God in us. We can't produce it. It's not man-made. It's heaven-sent. But we can say yes to God and posture ourselves to be in a place to experience his reviving work. Last night we talked about forgiveness and what a powerful moment that was to look across the front and see all of those faces. People who came to say, I need to forgive a person. Several of you shared stories with me afterwards. Chuck, your story was a great blessing to me last night. I got to pray with Chuck. And I was so privileged just to be here and be part of such a special moment in the lives of so many. Now, just to review what I said last night to those who were standing here, because I know many others made decisions perhaps out in the, in the pews. Forgiveness is a journey. It starts with a decision, a decision that says, even though it's contrary to my emotions, I'm going to choose to obey God. I'm going to choose to give. It's a decision, but it's a decision that begins a journey, a journey of healing, a journey of restoration, and hopefully a journey that will result in reconciliation, restoring a broken relationship. Now, you may remember also, I gave the advice last night, if you've been holding a lot of bitterness against a person and you've let go of that, you've chosen to obey, the tendency is to want to go to that person and say, I've been really bitter against you, but I've chosen to forgive you. The only time that would be appropriate is if they know you've been bitter. And in going to them, you go in a spirit of humility to say, I need you to forgive me. See, I've held bitterness against you, and that's affected the way I've treated you. It's affected our relationship, and so I need you to Forgive me. Now, that act of going and seeking forgiveness is part of what we call gaining a clear conscience. Gaining a clear conscience. Matthew chapter 5 tonight, well-known passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 in our workbook, page 14, gaining a clear conscience. Tonight is part two of a two-part message. Last night, part one, tonight, part two, the overall umbrella topic is reconciliation, restoring relationships. To do so, someone's going to have to forgive, and more than likely, someone else is going to have to seek forgiveness. You see our revival truth on the page. A desire of the revived heart is to maintain a clear conscience before God and others. Now, let me show you where we get this phrase a clear conscience. It comes from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the Apostle Paul can write, my conscience is clear. You hear the same thing in 2 Timothy 1.3, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. And then the writer of Hebrews 13.18, we are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. So we see this theme in Scripture, we are to pursue a clear conscience both with God and with people. Now here's our working definition of a clear conscience. It's in your workbook. A clear conscience is the ability to say there is no one alive whom I have knowingly wronged, offended, or hurt in any way that I've not gone back to and attempted to make things right with God and with them. 
Let me break it down. No one alive I have knowingly wronged. You say, Greg, is it my responsibility to try to remember every little thing I may have said or done? Thankfully, you have a helper, John 16, 8. When he, the Spirit of God, comes, he helps us by convicting us of sin and, right, and, and unrighteousness. So yes, God helps us. God brings us an awareness. We'll talk about that convicting work in just a moment. So there's no one alive. I've knownly wrong, offended, and hurt, and I've not gone back and sought to make it right. I'm going to walk you through some steps here in just a moment. Now let's just talk briefly about the conscience. Again, this is going to be foundational to many, but we're on this journey. We want to keep everybody with us. Understanding the importance of conscience, number one, the Holy Spirit uses your conscience to convict you of sinful attitudes and actions. One of the multitude of things that separates human life from animal life. And there are so many things that separate human life from animal life. Remember, it was only before the creation of human life there was that heavenly pause, the triune God gathered and they said, now let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Only regarding us did God say that before creating Adam and Eve. So created in God's image and likeness makes us unique in the order of creation. And one of the unique things is this beautiful thing we call a conscience. A conscience. Romans 9.1. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. See what he's saying? He says, I know I'm not lying to you. If I was lying, my conscience would be kicking in. My conscience is clear. I know I'm not lying. Acts 24, 16, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. That's our goal, to always maintain a blameless or a clear conscience. Now, you've heard that little phrase, let your conscience be your guide. Wrong. Let the word of God be your guide. You say, Greg, why can't you say let your conscience be your guide because your conscience can be damaged. Think of your conscience as a moral GPS that God has embedded in your DNA, in your, in your person, this moral GPS to help navigate you through a fallen world, to help you avoid temptation, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life as described in 1 John 2. The problem is we can damage our conscience. Let me illustrate. Patty and I were leading a conference in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We were in inner city Fort Wayne. Actually, the church that was hosting the conference, they had a, a large fence with barbed wire along the top all around their parking lot because it was so dangerous. And they literally had to lock us in in our trailer every night for protection. So we're, I'm busy setting up, you know, and I didn't notice in my busyness to set up that I was about 50 feet from a train track. All right, so we go uh, to sleep Friday night, sleep fine, go to sleep Saturday night, sleep fine, go to sleep Sunday night. At exactly 3.30 Monday morning, Patty and I shot up out of bed. Whistles were blowing, horns were blowing, the trailer was shaking. I thought it was the second coming, Pastor. 
how disappointed I was to discover it was only a freight train. You know, we kind of laughed, went back to sleep. Next night, same thing, 3.30, that freight train. We awoke a little bit, kind of laughed, went back to sleep. An amazing thing happened. The rest of that week, I did not hear that train again. And let me tell you why. That engineer took pity on me. So he just would slow that train down. He wouldn't blow his horn. No, that's not what happened. It was as loud as it was before, but I didn't hear it. I had tuned it out. And I think it's in that spirit that we read in Hebrews 3. Now, it's interesting. Hebrews 3 and 4, you find a phrase repeated three times. You know, when God says something once, we should perk up. But when God says something three times in two chapters, he's trying to get our attention. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As we think of the consequences of our sin, typically we think of the external consequences, how we hurt others and how we hurt the testimony of Christ. But my friend, there is an internal consequence to your disobedience. The heart becomes hardened. The conscience is damaged. And that puts you in a very vulnerable place in trying to navigate the many temptations in this fallen world. Another thought regarding the importance of conscience. The opposite of a clear conscience is a guilty conscience. You say, Greg, that's kind of a duh statement. Well, Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Your birthright, part of your spiritual birthright as a child of God is to live free from guilt. Now that's hard for some of us. See, some of us have grown up in faith traditions that taught us guilt was good. Even to the point that you start feeling guilty about not feeling guilty, right? <laughs> That's how messed up it can get. And I'm here to tell you that according to God's word, the blood of Jesus secures for you and I a guilt-free conscience. That's why Romans 8, 1 says, There is now therefore only a little condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. Is that what it says? No, there is now therefore no condemnation, no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. God does not motivate his people with guilt. It's a poor motivator. It's destructive to the peace, joy, and acceptance that God wants us to experience. Let me just hit pause here for a moment. Ask a couple of pesky questions just to see if I'm hitting home with anybody. Tonight, is your conscience clear with your family? Is your conscience clear with your family if your spouse is here tonight, if you're married, your spouse is here? Is your conscience clear in the way that you've been interacting with your spouse? How about your children? Is your conscience clear with your children? Let me give you a little homework assignment. Go home and ask your kids this question. Have I ever made a promise to you that I broke? Now, you meant it when you said, we're, doing, we're, we're going fishing this weekend. And you meant it when you said, we're doing Disney this summer. And then things came up and the budget fell apart and you forgot. But they didn't. How about your church family? 
Is your conscience clear with your church family? I've been in vocational ministry 35 plus years, 30 years pastoring a local church. I get it. We love our church. We're passionate about our church. We're passionate about the ministry and the music and the budget and all of that. But sometimes in our passion, we hurt each other. I don't know that this is true tonight. It's possible. It's possible there's someone over on this side of the room and there's someone over on this side of the room. And the reason you're sitting where you are is to be as far apart as possible. And then you have what I describe as the awkward bathroom encounter. There you are at the sink washing your hands. They open the door. It's tension. It's awkward. You mumble something. This is not fulfilling the law of Christ that we love one another. This is not pleasing to God. Is your conscience clear with your workplace? Are you giving your employer your very best? Are you managing his or her resources not as your own, but managing them as you ought? Are you as an employer or supervisor, are you treating your employees fairly? Firm, yes, but fairly with kindness and understanding. How about the lost world? Is your conscience clear with the lost world? How do you treat your child's teacher? How do you treat your child's coach, that coach who's out there volunteering his or her time to work with your child? How are you treating them? If you were to invite your neighbor to come to Home Life Cafe on Saturday morning, would he or she laugh at you? Because your interactions with them have been so negative. Well, if that's where you go to church, I don't want anything to do with that. How about your past? Ex-roommate back there that you're wrong, that you left with bad blood? Ex-spouse? You've been waiting patiently with me in Matthew chapter 5. Let's jump into our text. Matthew 5. 21. Again, we're taking this from uh, that sermon of sermons, that sermon on the mount. Think of it as Jesus' inaugural address. He's laying out what his coming kingdom is going to look at, the, look like. The, the kingdom that will be inaugurated through his death and resurrection and ultimately his return. So we jump into verse 21, Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now pause just a moment. In this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, he's taking Old Testament commandments and he's showing how they're going to be fulfilled. He says, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. Here's what this commandment's going to look like in the kingdom I have come to establish. Here he takes what we call the sixth commandment, you shall not commit murder. Now he acknowledges that up to this point, how has that been understood? How has that been applied? Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You take an innocent life, you will probably forfeit your life. That's how it's been applied up to this point. But notice in the kingdom, it's both internalized 
and expanded. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Just angry, just ticked off, just so frustrated that you verbalize or that you in some way demonstrate that anger against another person. He says, now that person's going to be liable to judgment, but then he ups it again. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now the phrase whoever insults, it's a difficult phrase to translate. It's an Aramaic word, raka, is what it sounds like. It literally translates empty head. This would be the equivalent if I just said to someone, hey, are you an idiot? Hey, are you stupid? You know, I'm just so frustrated. I'm just so ticked off. Hey, but I laid that kind of insult on them. Jesus said, you'll be hauled before the council. That's the Jewish Sanhedrin, Jewish Supreme Court. And then he ups it one more time. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now understand, in these days, to call another Jew a fool was the most slanderous thing you could say to them. The psalmist says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. So calling another person a fool is the equivalent of calling them a godless reprobate. It's the equivalent of telling them to go to you know where. And Jesus said at that point, your soul is under condemnation. He continues. Verse 23, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now pause. Had you and I been standing there that day and heard Jesus say these words and looked at the reaction of the crowd, here's what we would have seen. It was jaw-dropping for them. Let me explain why. Now he's transported us to the temple there in Jerusalem. You've come to offer your sacrifice to God. Now getting there was probably not easy. Where Jesus lived in the north, that was a three-day walk just to get to Jerusalem. But many Jews lived all over the ancient world, and for them it was weeks or months to get to the temple and great expense. You get to the temple early and you start standing in line. The first line is to buy your sacrificial animal. You can't provide your own. They had a racket going. So they had uh, really uh, jacked up the prices and, and, and made it very burdensome to the people. So you've waited in line and now you've bought your little lamb. So you got your little lamb and you wait in the next line. You can't offer that lamb yourself. A priest, a mediator has to offer it for you, a picture of the mediation work of Jesus. So now I'm standing and I'm waiting all this time and finally that priest waves me forward, and there I come, and he's standing there in his white, blood-splattered tunic and his knife. He's ready to quickly, humanely put that animal to death, to offer it as a sacrifice. And right there, suddenly, you remember somebody has something against you. You've wronged somebody. You've hurt somebody. And at that moment, you remember someone has some, something against you. Now, here was the shocking part. Jesus says, leave your sacrifice there. Go and be reconciled. Make it right. Then come back and offer your sacrifice. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I've discovered at times God can be terribly inconvenient. 
See, my mind, human mind, my ways. Lord, I've gone to all this trouble and expense. I'm just going to go ahead and take care of the sacrifice. Then I'll go make it right. And Jesus said, you can't do that. Why? God's not going to receive your sacrifice. You're living in willful disobedience. You're outside of the will of God. Until you make it right, God's not going to receive your offering. Oh, pastors, I shiver to think how Sunday morning offerings might be impacted if we were to take this principle seriously, that our offerings need to be offered from a clear conscience. Clearing your conscience, five steps. Now, again, all of this falls under the command, go and be reconciled. Go and make it right. We're pursuing reconciliation, healing this relationship, bringing it to where it was before the hurt. Number one, confess your sin to God and repent. You start with God. Remember our Diagram last night, vertical and horizontal, and I told you here's the principle. Vertical is always first. First we get right with God. Now we're in a position to get right with others. Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Only God can cleanse your conscience. When you sinned against that person, you sinned against God, and so we make it right with God first. David understood this. That's why in Psalm 51, his psalm of repentance, remember he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had been culpable in the death of her husband. He'd tried to cover it up and deceive the nation. But when he was finally broken and repentant before the Lord, Psalm 51.4, he writes, Against you and you only have I sinned, O God. Number two. Seek forgiveness from those you've wronged. This is my responsibility. Their responsibility is to forgive. My responsibility is to seek forgiveness. Now, I've got to have it simple because I can even mess up something as simple as an apology. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to teach you what I taught our children. I'm going to teach you what I've taught hundreds and hundreds of marriage couples and family counseling situations. I'm not trying to be legalistic, understand. This is a, a, a tool that has served me well, so I'm giving it to you. Not trying to be legalistic. You take it, you pray over it, and see what God would have you to do. How do I go about seeking forgiveness? No, number one, I need to be specific regarding the offense. Make sure they know what you're seeking forgiveness for. See, you're thinking one thing, and they've got a list of ten things, wondering which one it is that you're willing to own up to. So that's why you don't just walk up and mumble, I'm sorry. No, you need to be specific. I gossiped. I broke a promise. I spoke to you in anger. I stole something from you. Number two, take full responsibility for your behavior, not blaming others or excusing your actions. Patty and I had only been married a short time. We had our first little feud. My fault. I knew I needed to make it right, so I sat down and I said, Sweetheart, I should never have said what I said to you. But you know, if you hadn't said what you said to me, I wouldn't have said what I said. Now, you're laughing. You're more gracious than she was. She didn't laugh. 
rightfully so. What was I trying to do? I was trying to blame her for my sin. I was trying to make her responsible rather than taking ownership and responsibility for my sin. Number three, come with an attitude of humility. An attitude of humility. Again, I'm not trying to be legalistic, but I think the best verbiage is simply this. Will you please forgive me for, and you name the offense. Will you please forgive me for, and you name the offense. I think that's important. Because this thing is so painful, by the way, I'll usually hit, uh, uh, add a little caveat, and is there anything else I need to be seeking forgiveness for here? I want to get it all out. I want to be done with this. And me asking for forgiveness requires a response from you. And that's going to let me know where we are in our relationship. And by the way, they may not be ready for giving forgiveness yet. They may still be in that battle of bitterness that we talked about last night. You're going to know how to pray for them. Proverbs 18, 19, this isn't the New Living Translation. Great word picture. An offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. Arguments separate friends like a gate locked with bars. Right? You've hurt them. You've wounded them. The walls are up now. They're not going to let you back in. In typical man fashion, what do I do? I try to get a battering ram and preach or bully or manipulate. That doesn't work. Humbly, I just come to the gate. I messed up again. I don't deserve your forgiveness, but I'm asking for it. Would you please forgive me for? I was leading a conference in Jefferson City, Missouri, a young couple came to the microphone during testimony service. Her name was Jenny. Jenny spoke first. God found me with an unforgiving heart. He showed me that the reason I could not forgive others was because it was I who needed to seek forgiveness. My husband and I are newlyweds just shy of one year. When we first met and began dating, I was unfaithful to him. That was four years ago. And until this week, I had not confessed this thing to him. There were several times over the years I felt compelled to confess. I always found some justification or reason not to. Thursday night, it's clear conscience night, God called me out. I spent the majority of that night bargaining with God to let me out of this. Finally, around 1 a.m., I gave in. I woke my husband up. I confessed this thing that I knew would break his heart. I was terrified that this would surely be the end. After a few moments of silence, he prayed over me. He asked God to clear my conscience and bring me peace. I was blown away. I know God will help us to be healed in our marriage and has better things in store for our future than would have been possible if I had not sought his forgiveness. The power of a humble apology. Number three, where necessary, make restitution for any damage that you've caused. Again, this is part of reconciliation. If I've stolen from you, I need to repay you. If I've gossiped about you, not only do I seek your forgiveness, but I go to those to whom I have gossiped. I've entangled them in my sin, and I seek their forgiveness as well. Jesus was riding into Jericho, and he looks up in the tree, and there's that short-statured Jewish tax collector. What was his name? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, come on down. I'm going to have lunch at your house today. And there Zacchaeus publicly proclaims his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Luke 19, 8. Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, 
Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Notice how Zacchaeus immediately needed to clear his conscience. You think that cost him a pretty penny? But he was willing because he wanted to obey the Lord. And it was that fruit of repentance. Jesus responds, today salvation has come to this house. Number four, where possible, seek to restore the relationship. Now, I want you to understand the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. It only takes one person to forgive. That's why when you saw those folks standing here last night, I was so encouraged. They were obeying God. It only takes one person to forgive, but it takes two to reconcile. Now, I use the phrase where possible. Let me show you where that comes from, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You may come to confess. You may come to seek reconciliation. They may not be ready yet. They may be fighting that battle of bitterness. You'll know to pray for them. Or, now hear me, there may be situations where reconciliation is really not recommended. Sin is very messy. In a situation involving sexual assault or something like that, I'm not sure that reconciliation is really a healthy thing to pursue. And this is why God has given you wise pastors, by the way. Sin is messy. And sometimes we need help navigating through the messiness of sin. So God gives us wise pastors to help us with those difficult decisions. Number five, go forward with a sense of urgency. Oh, do you hear the urgency in the text? You're standing there, ready to offer your sacrifice. And remember, someone has something against you. Go now. Be reconciled. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Why the urgency? Number one, it's hindering your relationship with God. Again, this is part of that wall that we build up on Sunday night. This is hindering your relationship with God. Another reason for urgency, you become a stumbling block to this person. Because of your sin and selfishness, they're fighting the battle with bitterness. And Jesus had some serious things to say about stumbling blocks. And number three, just, this just comes from the school of personal experience. The longer you wait, the harder it is. All right. Just like last night, I've heard a few excuses along the way. Let's deal with them. Number one, it happened a long time ago. Interesting, I find no place in Scripture that teaches me that sin evaporates. Hear me. It may have been a day, it may have been a year, it may have been ten years. If you have not dealt with the sin scripturally, the sin is still there and still having negative consequences in your life. I met a sweet lady, Ruth, in Allegan, Michigan, and Here's what, Ruth, uh, here's what Ruth shared with us. She said, when you spoke about a clear conscience, the Holy Spirit convicted me of a lie that I told 42 years ago. A lie that actually cheated someone out of a very special honor. I realized I was a liar, a cheater, and a thief. She said, I had been begging God for forgiveness for years and years. It just kept nagging at her, but she never got a sense of peace. She said, until I picked up the phone and called the woman. She had completely forgotten about it. 
but she said, I had not. So I called her. She says, I'm not sure she's forgiven me, but I have cleared my conscience with the Lord. Second excuse, they've moved away. Uh, just like sin doesn't evaporate with time, it doesn't dissipate with distance, all right? Maybe they left the church. Maybe they moved to another town. You don't see them anymore. That doesn't mean that the sin is gone or that you have fulfilled your responsibility in pursuing reconciliation. I was preaching these principles in the last church that I pastored there in the Dallas area. We had a, a very precious Hispanic woman in the church. Her name was Norma. I always knew when Norma was calling me because when I would say hello, she would say, Hermano Greg, Hermano Greg, brother Greg in Spanish. Yes, Norma. She said, you know how last Sunday you were teaching us to pursue a clear conscience? I said, yes. She said, I remembered she had grown up in El Paso, far west Texas. She had grown up lost, part of a gang. And she said, I remembered there was a girl in high school. I bullied her. I bullied her terribly. And God reminded me, and I said, well, God, that's been years ago, and I don't even live in El Paso anymore, but if you want me to make it right, you're going to have to connect me to her. All right, that next week after the sermon, after Norma's prayer, now, Norma worked at the police station. You'd go to her desk to pay your traffic fine. A lady comes to pay a traffic fine. Norma says, I notice you're from El Paso. I grew up in El Paso. Now, there's someone there I'd like to find, but I know it's a big place. Do you happen to know so-and-so? She said, I do know so-and-so. I've actually got her phone number here in my phone, and she gave it to Norma. And Norma was able to call that woman and seek her forgiveness. I love that story, church. God will move mountains if you're willing to obey. If you're willing to say yes, God will move mountains. It's such a small thing. Really? Why is it still bothering you? Maybe it's small to you. May not be small to another. Things have gotten better, have they? Or has your heart just gotten harder? It will cost me money. Well, we need to camp out here just a minute. You're saying, Greg, if I do what you're encouraging me to do, you, you don't understand. This could really cost me could cost me a demotion. I could lose my job. I may have to pay a fine or a penalty. So here's your question. What price tag are you going to put on a clear conscience? What price tag are you going to put on being right with God? What price tag are you going to put on obeying God? During our first conference that I hosted as a pastor, I had a dear friend in the church. He was an attorney, a, a deacon, a leader in our church. And he called me and he said, God's all over me. He said, I was defending a client a couple weeks back and I withheld some evidence because I was afraid it would cause the judge to rule against us. And he said, God has convicted me, so I'm getting ready to call the judge, tell him what I did. He said, I don't know what's going to happen, but I've got to obey God. And we prayed, called the judge. There were a few restless days in there as the judge reconsidered the case. judge called him back and he said, what you withheld would not have made a difference in my ruling and then gave him a very severe reprimand. What I appreciated about him so much, he was willing to do whatever it took, pay whatever cost it took to get right with God. I will do it later. Probably not. You've not done it yet. Today, if you hear his voice, 
He or she is not a Christian. You say, Greg, my boss is not going to get this. My old roommate is as lost. You know, uh, what a great way for you to put the gospel on display than to obey the Lord and help an unbeliever understand your motivation in making it right. I was more right and they were more wrong. Well, number one, I'm not sure how objective we are when we make a statement like that, but let's just say, for argument's sake, they were 80% wrong, you were 20% wrong, you're still responsible for your 20%. It happened before I was saved. Now, I get it. It's under the blood. You were lost. You didn't know. You didn't understand. And yet, God still may be prompting you to go again as a testimony to put the power of the gospel on display. So my question, do you have a clear conscience tonight? Is your conscience clear with both God and with people? And you say no. So I'm going to ask again, what are you going to do about it? 